The imagining, the imagining of the first rabbi ever to go in space unfolds like this. He returns from earth and there waiting for him on the tarmac is a group of reporters and they ask him what it was like to be in space and how does it feel? How do I feel, the rabbi says, I'm exhausted. And they ask him why and he says, well, we circled, orbited the earth every 90 minutes, which means that a day was 90 minutes long. And so it began, morning services, afternoon services, evening services. He goes, I have nothing else to do. I understand how he feels. By tradition, as Yom Kippur is over and you manage to push yourself away from the breakfast table, Jewish tradition asks that we leave our homes and begin to build a sukkah on that same night. The idea is simple as it is beautiful that filled with hope at the gift of another year, our first impulse should be to, to perform a mitzvah as soon as possible. That's what our tradition says. But in truth, I've only seen a few people actually manage to do it after spending a full day in shul and services and a full day of fasting. But I know that I did something like it. I pushed myself away from the table and I told myself I have to write a sermon for Sukkot. You see, as a parent of four children who went through the Jewish day school system, we've admitted the truth that has long been whispered amongst, and that is the more that you pay for school, the less they actually go. Exhibit A in this argument are the months of September and October in the Jewish calendar, which yields nearly three and a half weeks of little schooling. So trust me when I say to you, that whatever complaints you have about the cycle of the Jewish holidays, no rabbi in his right mind created that cycle. If they had, Sukkot would have never fallen out five days after Yom Kippur. You can bank on it. In his beautiful book called The Life of Pi, the Canadian author Jan Martel tells a true story. It's about a black leopard that escapes from the Zurich Zoo in the winter of 1933. The black leopard was new to the zoo and seemed to be getting along with the other male leopard, but various paw injuries hinted at matrimonial strife. Before the zoo could figure out what to do, she had squeezed through a break in the roof bars of her cage and vanished out into the night. The news that a wild carnivore was free in the city called Hysteria in Zurich. The police set traps and hunting dogs were let loose, but not a trace of the leopard was found. And but 10 weeks later and 25 miles outside of the city, the black leopard, she was found holed up in a barn. But here's the thing I kept wondering about. And that is how did a black tropical cat manage to survive for more than two months in the Swiss winter without being seen by anyone else. Part of the answer is seen in ourselves. And that's because we think that the animal is a predator and wants to be around people to hunt. But the real truth is that when animals escape from what they know, when they escape from the known into the unknown, 
There is one thing that an animal hates more than anything else, and that is the unknown. Escaping animals always go hide in the very first place they find that gives them a sense of security, because that's what they crave. The known, safety, security, and predictability, which is very understandable to us, because we are a little different sometimes, except for the fact that we are different. It struck me that of all the great stories of human transformation, they are also the stories of humans who deliberately go from the unknown, from what they know. These are stories where people undertake a journey and emerge profoundly different from what they were at the start of it all. Moses, for example, the prince of Egypt, leaves the comforts of home and heads out into a desert into the dangers of the unknown. And from there, all of the powerful moments of his life will be tied to whatever will have happened to him in that desert. Moses in that desert finds his wife. He forms his family. He encounters the burning bush, and only then does he return to Egypt. But having left Egypt behind, it is no longer home. It too is now unknown to him. And when he succeeds in his mission, where does Moses bring the people? Right back to the place where his own journey had started into the desert, into the unknown. Similar truths, by the way, are found in the foundational stories of some of the world's other great religions. You hear such things in Islam and Christianity as well. The same is true for Buddhism, where they retell the story of another prince who puts on the clothes of a commoner, walks out of his castle, and wanders the world he had never seen. And the tales of those experiences and the wisdom that comes from those experiences are the foundations of Buddhism. And Emerson, the great 19th century American writer who gave birth to transcendentalism, ideas that spoke about transcending and exceeding where we are at the moment, the ideas that developed into a movement to send people into nature and away from their homes in the cities and transcendentalism, Emerson said, go where he will. The wise person is always at home. In the late 60s and early 70s, Steve Jobs was heavily influenced by reading Emerson. So he too went off. And he spent a few years living and working on an organic orange grove. Not surprisingly, he writes that this period where he wandered in and out of university, never enrolling but only auditing classes, studying calligraphy, and working as a migrant worker on the orange grove were some of the most formative years of his life. In other words, wisdom comes in surprising ways, not like knowledge, because wisdom is not a destination but the byproduct of placing yourself into places and with people that you don't know and don't yet understand. Remember, it wasn't very long ago in human history when people were born and lived and died in the same five square miles. Today we are born and we live and die in and around the length of the entire globe because we travel in ways that were unthinkable even 60 years ago. I remember in 1977, I took a plane ride to Florida 
And when I came back, the teacher begged me to write an essay to share with the students in the class. They were amazed that someone went on a plane. But taking the red eye from, from Los Angeles to Toronto is not the kind of journey from home that I'm talking about with you. The kind of journey that I'm speaking of is the journey of your soul. Because this kind of journey is not one of space, but of experience, which becomes the first of somewhere we take it and then where it brings us. In other words, the task is not the journey. The journey is the task. And so it's no surprise that those great foundational stories of Moses' journey and Buddha's and in Christianity and in Islam all tell the story of someone who leaves their home and then heads into the unknown. And the rabbis, when commenting on the holiday of Sukkot and on the Sukkah itself, offer this simple instruction. The mitzvah, the commandment of Sukkot, is that we are told to eat and laugh and drink and sleep in it. The 19th century rabbi Yehuda Leib Alter says that even includes married couples, that they should go sleep in it as well. And it seems to me that there's a wisdom here. But it won't be seen if the sukkah is just some ritual token to look at and leave. In teaching process to the purpose, Jewish tradition was encouraging us to leave our homes and to head out. And even if it is just out the door on your back deck, symbolically it is meaningful because of the hope that each of us will discover the moment when going outside might just lead us to something deeper on the inside. This journey, by the way, never happens by itself. Like that leopard that had to escape because it was afraid for its life, we too need to push ourselves to leave the things that we are comfortable with, to exit from the gilded cages that we build around ourselves all the time. This kind of journey never unfolds by accident because the process of searching and discovering must be never-ending. And it may be for that very reason why the word for life in Hebrew, chayim, is always in the plural because life is never just one thing but a series of things of stories, of paths, and discoveries that you make along the way. But assuming all along that we've never truly arrived to where we wish to be leaves us somewhat more complete and wise and whole in knowing. I think it is for that reason that the Torah, after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, does not end with the Israelites entering into the Promised Land You'll remember, of course, that the Torah completes itself with the Israelites standing on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, telling us that our promised places are always elusive, ever in motion, that not the journey, but it is part of the journey, that we never actually arrive into the promised place. And this week, out for a walk with our COVID dog, I saw that the leaves are finally turning the sun is just a little less high in the sky. The sun is setting earlier and the wind just a little bit cooler so that people are now heading back into their homes from being outside over the course of a warm summer. But this week, our tradition commands us to go the other way into our better home and hopefully to your better self. Shabbat Shalom Chak everyone.